Church family, let me invite you to take God's Word and join me in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19 is where we'll be studying together. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. As you read throughout all of God's Word, as you read particularly throughout the Old Testament of God's Word, Scripture does not sugarcoat the difficulties of God's relationship to His people. Scripture actually with shocking clarity. It shows the great difficulties that sometimes exist between God and this people that He has chosen for Himself. The, the law of God. It begins with God looking at His people and saying, I am going to be your God and you are going to be My people. I love you. God says, at the very beginning of this relationship with His people, I love you. I have chosen you and you are mine simply based on the fact that I love you. God establishes this relationship with His people by saying, if you will operate within the good confines of My law, then from Me there will be blessing upon you. There will be flourishing for you in all that you do. However, as you read past kind of that beginning moment in Exodus 19 and 20, and as you make your way forward, it doesn't take you long to find out that some great difficulties arise between God and His people. In fact, the Old Testament lays bare for us a really disturbing pattern of people spurning God's law time after time. And yet, what do we find? We find that time after time, God continues to save, to rescue, and redeem His people. He find, we find that God leads, He feeds, He provides, He guides, He protects, He establishes, He causes nations to fall before the Israelites. He gives to them a glorious land of promise. God, everything that God's doing in the Old Testament is God declaring, hey, listen to me, I love you. I love you. I really do care about you. And what we find is that even when people continually spurn the love of God and they rebel against Him, God is still declaring, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then as you get to the very end of the Old Testament, and that last prophet in the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi begins with God reminding His people, I have loved you. And I love you still. But just a few verses later, there in Malachi chapter 1, in what might be the most shocking moment of all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God look at God and their question to Him is, how have you loved us? Over and over and over again. God has declared His great love. But because of their hardness of heart, because of their rebellion, their question is, God, I don't think so. How? How have You loved us, God? And then, God is silent. 
for 400 years, God is silent. To be sure, the people have what has already been spoken through the law and the prophets, but there's nothing else from God. No new or fresh reminder of I love you. No reminder of I am with you. And for 400 years, they sit in that silence. They sit there. And I I can't help but wonder, as generation after generation passed by, how long did it take to move from how have you loved us Maybe all the way to, is God even there? Does He even care? And then, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And on that night, kind of a normal, run-of-the-mill, just like every other night that had passed by before, church, a baby was born. A baby was born. The sky explodes with glorious light and the song of the angels. And because that baby is the Word of God made flesh, God is no longer silent. And when that baby begins to scream and to cry after filling his lungs with the very oxygen that he created, that cry is declaring, I love you. I have always loved you and I will love you with an everlasting love. Beloved, here's a reality that I think is probably true for at least somebody in this room this morning. Some of you, you don't have to wonder what that silence from God is like. Because you've lived that before. Maybe you're living in the very silence of God right now. And while at this time of the year there are lights everywhere, you live in darkness. You've prayed, but God is silent. Days, weeks, months, maybe years have gone by and you have forgotten God's great love for you. Maybe you wonder if He ever loved you. Maybe you even doubt the claims of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is love. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to Bethlehem. I want you to see a manger. I want you to look past a manger to Jerusalem's cross. I want you to look to Christ. And when you then look to Jesus Christ, you will see the indescribable love of God for you. And not only will you do that, dear friends, but we're going to see in the text this morning that God's great design, God's great design for us is that you would actually not just see the love of God from a distance, that it would not be some stale 2,000 year old kind of love, but that you would understand from God's word this morning that God actually wants you to know the love of Christ. That He wants you to sit in it. That He wants you to marinate in it today, tomorrow, all the days of your life. In chapter 3, Paul is overwhelmed. As we direct our attention to the text, Paul is overwhelmed by God's grace and God's love. Paul's overwhelmed by a couple of different things. Number one, that God would save him in the first place. 
And secondly, Paul is overwhelmed that God would then appoint Paul to be the one who goes to the Gentiles, who goes to the nations to make the gospel known. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 3 that he would preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And Paul can't get over it, guys. He is in awe of this glorious reality. And so then in chapter 3, what we find is that by and large, Paul is praying. He's praying a prayer to God for the Ephesians, which culminates in his great longing for them to know the love of Christ. And beloved, that is my great longing for us as well. Look to the text with me. Chapter 3, pick up in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Church, as we know and as we experience the love of Christ, it's going to begin to do some things in us. And I want us to see from the text kind of three realities that the love of Christ is producing, is going to produce in you. So number one, the first reality is this. The love of Christ, one of the things, maybe one of the first things that it's going to produce in us is that it is going to produce humility in us. The love of Christ for us will produce a humility in us. How does Paul begin this in verse 14? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason, Paul, are you bowing your knees before the Father? Well, if your eyes were to fall back up to verses 1 to 13, and maybe you can take a look at this later on today, but all that Paul is saying in verses 1 to 13 is leading him to verse 14. And in those first 13 verses, you find that Paul is amazed by God's love, by God's grace, and by God's mercy. Paul is amazed by God's love and grace that would save him. Paul is amazed that God's plan was always to incorporate the Gentiles into this one glorious covenant family of God. And he is amazed that he, Paul, the guy who used to persecute the church, that he is God's chosen instrument to begin that process by the preaching of the Gospel. And so Paul says what in verse 14? For this reason I do what? I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's response to God's love and grace upon him is that of bowing my knees before the Father. Paul's response is humility. It's worship. It's deflecting attention away from him and toward Christ. 
Beloved, when a person truly understands the depths of God's great love, mercy, and grace, there can only be one fitting response, and that is a bowing of the knee. When a person truly tastes the grace and the love of God, they will only want one response, which will be to bow the knee before the Father. And here we're being warned, maybe subtly, but we're being warned against our own selfish and sinful, self-seeking pride. We're being reminded that the presence of pride in our lives reflects the absence of an understanding of grace. Because a true understanding of God's grace and His love to us, it is going to kill boasting in us about who we are, what we've done, where we've been, what we've learned. A true understanding of God's grace bows us low and it raises God high. It bows you low so that people can look right over you and just miss you and see the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 9 tell us? These verses are well known to so many of you. Among them we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. How could a person ever read that and then strut about the room as though they are the greatest reality? This kind of love and this kind of grace is meant to cause only one fitting response from us. That of bowing of the knee. Christian, Christmas it ought to be one of the most humbling seasons of the year for us. How could we possibly look at our Savior who humbled Himself by laying aside His glory? How could we possibly look at our Savior who humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and not ourselves be humbled? But Paul goes on, look in verse 15. Speaking of God, the Father, from whom, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul references God as Father at the end of verse 14. And now saying at the beginning of verse 15 that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from the Father. What does Paul mean by this? That every family on heaven and earth derives their name. One of the big themes of the book of Ephesians 
is that God brings people who previously hated each other, Jews and Gentiles, and He brings them together in one beautiful, glorious community of faith. The whole of Ephesians 2, verses 11-22 to teaches us that. But in verse 19 of that text, we read this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Church, not only has God's love and grace and mercy saved you, but God's love and grace and mercy has made you a part of His family. He's brought you close. He has not loved you from a distance. He has not loved you with some passing by kind of love. You, warts and all, He brings close. That's the whole beautiful glory of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God would dare to come near to those bound up in the muck and the mire of their sin. Church, you used to be a rebel, but now you are a son. You used to be an orphan, but now you are a daughter. You used to be all alone, but now you have a family. How could our response be anything other than, I bow my knees before the Father? Has Christmas humbled you? Has it caused you to look away from self and to Christ? Have you bowed the knee before the Father? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that one day every knee will eventually bow before the glory and majesty of King Jesus. Have you submitted your life? Have you let go of your ideas about what it takes to be a good person, what it takes to be right with God, how to get to heaven when you die. Have you trusted in Christ? All that you need for salvation this day is to let go of self and to take hold of Christ. Secondly, though, what else is the love of Christ doing in us? There's a second reality. The love of Christ for us is producing a deepening faith in us. So the love of Christ for us, what is it doing? Producing a deepening faith in us. Look down to verse 16. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I am resisting the urge to preach for days on those few words. Every word there is rich and is weeks worth of sermons. But let me try to summarize what Paul is saying in verse 16, beginning of verse 17. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would be strengthened in their souls by God's Spirit so that they would have a growing and deepening faith in Christ. What does he pray? Verse 16, that He would grant you. 
He prays that he prays that God would grant to you because salvation, as we heard earlier in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, is not a work that we can earn ourselves. It cannot be granted to us by our own effort. It must come from a good and kind and loving God. He prays that God would grant this gift of faith because that is what is necessary for salvation. Paul prays this. He prays that God would take His Spirit, that He would work into your heart, that your faith would be deepened in Christ. Paul prays not only that they would be saved, but that they would be sanctified, that they would become more like Jesus day in and day out. According to what in verse 16? According to the riches of His glory. That God would pull from the treasure troves of His glorious nature, of His glorious character to do this work in the Ephesians. That God would pull from His holiness, from His grace, from His mercy, from His glory, from His kindness to do this work. Look at the beginning of verse 17. So that, here's what the great aim is. So that. So that. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Beloved, that is Christmas. That's Christmas. That, Jesus, God made flesh, would dwell in your hearts through faith. This is why Christ came. Christ did not come just to merely give us a holiday. Christ did not come to merely be a beautiful adornment on your holiday. Christ came so that He might dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ came not only to dwell among us, but He ultimately came to dwell in us through faith. Do not miss the glaring, flashing, glowing reality that Christ only dwells in your hearts through faith. Complete trust in who Jesus is and what He came to do. Leaning your whole weight upon Christ. All of your hope for salvation and heaven and a right relationship with God, it is all resting upon not self, not your works, not your attendance, not your giving, not anything that you might do, but resting upon Christ. Believing. Taking to heart rejecting all else and by faith receiving Christ. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. I want you to have this saving faith. But he's not stopping there. He's also saying to them, as you live out your life as a Christian, that faith, by the power of God's Spirit, we want that to be deepened in you, Paul is praying. 
so that faith not uh, faith is more than just this entryway into salvation it is the sum and it is the essence of all that there is is there a saving faith in the lord jesus christ dwelling abiding remaining there it's not just here for the christmas season it's not just something that'll pop back up in about four months at easter but it's dwelling there it's not leaving you're not letting go of the one that has laid hold of you and by faith you've been saved by faith in all the sweet promises of god you are living out your days growing deepening in your faith and then thirdly what is the love of christ producing in us the love of christ is establishing and it is fulfilling us the love of christ for us establishes and fulfills pick up the second half of verse 17 Paul's prayer is that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. As Paul continues in the second half of verse 17, he creates this imagery for us of a deeply rooted tree and of a large building on a firm foundation. That you would be rooted in the love of Christ. Imagine there a huge tree. It is fixed firmly. It is set. Its roots run deep the tree is large it is steady it is strong also imagine a a massive building with a broad and thick vast foundation that is able to hold and to sustain that building paul is praying for the ephesians by extension for us that we would also be rooted like that Psalm 1 tree by the waters and like the man who is building his house on the foundation of stone uh, so that when the storm comes, when the doubt comes, when the weak faith inevitably comes, we will not be moved, rooted, and grounded in the love of Christ. Just look at the text there in verse 17. Rooted, grounded in love. The great love of God. Not merely a word, not merely a feeling, not an emotion, not an idea floating around in the cosmos somewhere, but the love of God personified in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse 18. Paul desires that we would comprehend with all the saints that we collectively together would lay hold of, that we would seize, that we would get it, that we would understand the vast dimensions of God's great love and grace in Christ. 
What is he saying there at the end of verse 18? Just try to comprehend. Because in verse 19, this really just surpasses knowledge. But we're being invited in this moment, collectively, church, with all the saints, just try to wrap your brain around the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for you. And do you know when we're being called to do that? We're being called to do that right here and right now even if we don't feel lovely. Even if we know our sin. Even if we don't feel like we have been worthy enough to earn the love of God. Caveat, you can't be worthy enough to earn the love of God. Even if you don't feel lovely, there's still an invitation. Think about this. Try to wrap your brain around this and to know the dimensions of God's grace and love for us in Christ. Because there is no sin that you have committed and there is no sin you can commit that is beyond the love and the grace of Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter because there is a breadth and a length and a height and a depth to the love of Christ for you that reaches, as the old hymn says, it reaches to the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. You cannot outrun the grace and the love of Christ. And he concludes in verse 19. I want you to know the love of Christ. Not from a distance. I want you to know it experientially. I want you to marinate in it. Up close. Not from a distance. And it's going to be almost impossible to wrap your brain around this, Paul is saying, it surpasses, it surpasses knowledge. When you begin to think about all the depth and intricacies of the love of Christ for you, that He would leave His throne. That He would be born. That He would lay aside privilege and glory. That He would take on human flesh. He would become a man. He would live as a man. He would suffer. He would be rejected. He would be despised. He would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would be tortured. He would be beaten. He would be spat upon. He would be crucified. He would bleed. He would die. That is the love of Christ. And just try. Just try to wrap your brain around all that is true for you because of that great love. Paul's final desire is that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you would fully understand salvation. 
that you would fully understand God's love and grace. That you would be fully conformed to the image of Christ. That you would grow to a fullness of maturity in Christ. That you would be fully rooted and grounded in love. And so we ask again this morning, are you established and fulfilled in Christ and His great love for you? Are you born again by faith in Christ? Are you growing by faith in Christ? And maybe, maybe what I just hope that you would remember most of all, as you walk away from this service of worship, as you gather back tonight, as you celebrate tomorrow and the days to come, that you would just believe by faith that God really does love you. He really does love you. In all the stuff, in all the mess, in all the sin, in all the rebellion, the fact that you sinned trying to get here this morning doesn't negate the love of God for you. And when life gets a little dark and hard, when faith grows a little dim, when it's hard to believe that these things are true, do two things. Look to the manger and see there a baby. And then look to the cross and see there the Savior of the world giving Himself for you. And you will then know the love of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we can only begin to scratch the surface of God's great love for us in Christ. There is a breadth, a length, a height, and a depth to it. But God, we thank You that the love of Christ it is sure, it is certain. The evidence, God, that You really love us is that You sent Your Son for us. God, help us not to forget. Help us not to doubt Your love for us. God, help us to walk in a gospel humility because of Your great love. God, help us. God, to have desires to just walk with You. To commune with You. God, why would we not want to when You've loved us so much? When You've proven time and time again that You love us and that You will love us with an everlasting love. So God, for the one doubting this morning, God, overrun their doubts with Your great love and grace in Christ.
God, do your work in our hearts. Whatever we need. God, wherever we need to be more like Christ, wherever a person might need to trust for the very first time by faith, God, whatever the case may be, do your work. God, as we sing in response of this glorious mystery that you would become a man, that the blood of Jesus would forgive our sins as he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. God, as we declare the glorious gospel now, make it so, God, that every person in this room would believe it. Make it so, O God, that Your great name be praised. We ask all these things through Christ Christ our Lord. Amen. Church, I want to ask all of you.